so we're in Romans, and last week we got into Romans 11, and we stopped at the end of verse 10, and we're going to get into tonight the portion where the Gentiles get grafted in. And I will tell you right up front that that is the cause of just all sorts of confusion and controversy, has been forever. In 11, he starts off talking about the fact that God hasn't rejected his people. And he says, I'm evidence of that. I'm an Israelite. I'm not rejected. And he said that throughout the history of Israel, Israel has gone into idol worship, apostasy, violence, virtually every pathology that a human society can go into. So what God has done periodically is when they get so bad that he can't stand them anymore, he whistles up an empire and sends them into exile. We've all heard this before, but the purpose of the exile, of course, is to wring out of them the thing that got God finally to the point where he's getting rid of them. But in no case does he ever get rid of them entirely. They remain his people, and I've said it this way lots and lots of times. What God says in the end of Deuteronomy is, all right, you folks are my people, and best for everybody if you live according to the Torah that I gave you, and you form a good society, and I just bless your socks off. That's what I want to have happen. But understand that if you go down the route of every other human society and fall into idol worship and violence and all those kinds of pathologies, you're still going to be my people, but it wouldn't be right for you to continue to be my people while you are being a bad witness to me. So, if you do that, what's going to happen is I'm going to send you into exile. And I'm going to protect you in exile, so you're never going to go away. Israel is never going to not exist. And we can either have you exist in the land, following the Torah, and I'm blessing your socks off. Or we can have you continue to exist in exile, where you're afraid and things are bad and you're enslaved and all that kind of stuff, but it will be obvious to everyone that I am still protecting you. You've all heard the comment, I believe, by Mark Twain, that the surest evidence that God exists is the Jews. The fact that they have continued to exist for 3,500 years, and nobody's been able to eradicate them. They still have their original language, and God clearly has his hand on them. And he's either got his hand on them for blessing in the land, or he's got his hand on them for uh, protection, somewhat, in exile. And when I say somewhat, exile is rough, and he does not protect every one of them, but he protects the nation. Comment was, with all the persecution and so forth, they're still pretty numerous. Whereas the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all those kinds of people, they're no longer identifiable as such. They've become something else. As I am fond of saying, when the Roman Empire fell, that doesn't mean that Italians ceased to exist. The people who made up the Roman Empire, those people still exist, just the Roman Empire is gone. So the difference between that and Israel is Israel is not gone. Israel continues to be identifiable throughout human history since their, their founding. 
And we talked a couple times ago when we were looking at Ezekiel 37, which is the dry bones chapter. God says this valley is full of dry bones, which is to say all of the people of Israel who have died over the years in exile and the wilderness and all the places where they've died, the question becomes, can this nation live again? And God says to the prophet, call skin down on them and breathe into them, and yes, they will love, and I will bring them back to their land. So the fact that Hebrews have died by the millions over the years doesn't negate the fact that God is going to raise them from the dead and bring them back. So that's sort of where we start. And let me pick it up at Romans 11:7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So the point that the prophets are making is once God has had enough and he can't stand the stink anymore, he then goes ahead and hardens their hearts and blinds their eyes and shuts their ears because he's decided they're going into exile and that's just all there is to it. And as you're all very well aware, the righteous go into exile with the unrighteous. And of course, the poster child for that is Daniel. Daniel is, by all biblical accounts, completely righteous. There's nothing negative ever said in scripture about Daniel. So from a biblical point of view, he's righteous. Yet, he grew up in Babylon, and then he lived in Persia. He never came back to the land. So God, when he decides to sand the nation off, takes them all, and they're gone. And so that's what Paul is saying here. So now down to verse 11, which is where we left off last time. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So what Paul is saying is we have a temporary situation. And the temporary situation is God has hardened and blinded Israel. And he's done that in order to make room for the Gentiles to come in. But there is going to be a time when they are brought back and reinstated, if you will, in the land as their people. And that will increase the blessing to the world far more than simply the inclusion of the Gentiles. 13. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. As much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And again, he's clearly talking about resurrection from the dead. 
You can go back to the Ezekiel passage and so forth. There is going to be a resurrection, and God is going to reinstate his people. You've all heard the rabbinic thing, which I very much like. When that happens, the generation that perished during the 40 years in the wilderness is going to raise from their graves in the wilderness, and they're going to come into the land, and they're going to be led by Moses, who is also buried in the wilderness. So Paul is talking here in terms of resurrection. He's talking in terms of very much future. And this is Johnnyology. This is not thus saith the Lord. But my personal belief is the thing that is going to get them all on the same page is going to be the actual return of the Messiah. So verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what was by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, to a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I wanted to read that all in a chunk before I talked about it. Ron Dart, when he was in this passage, had a very, very nice perspective on this. His perspective has been, and again, I agree with it, one of the things that is going on at this time in history is you have multiple sects of Judaism, just like you do today, just like there are multiple sects of Christianity. And there was a very strong sect that said, okay, the way that Gentiles come into the kingdom of God is we turn them into Jews. And we have a process to do that, and it involves circumcision. And, of course, you all know the letter to the Galatians, for example, where Paul says, no, no, no. You do not have to be circumcised to come into the kingdom of God. God has brought you into the kingdom by giving you his Holy Spirit, and that's all you need. That is your ticket. That is your bona fide. That is all you need, and you need not do anything else because God himself has brought you in. So if you've got the golden ticket, if you will, God himself lets you into the backstage, you need not worry about security or anybody else, you're in. And these Jews that are coming around trying to convert you into Jews are in fact out of line. And that's what the Council of Jerusalem was talking about, etc. Having said that, Gentiles who are grafted in are not Israel. They are in the kingdom of God. Think about this a minute now. Paul goes to great lengths to explain you do not have to get circumcised. What is the mark of Israel? Circumcision. 
Circumcision is the mark of Israel. And circumcision predates Moses, predates the giving of the Torah. Paul talked about that earlier on. Remember earlier in Romans he said, when did God save Abraham? Was it after he was circumcised or before he was circumcised? Remember the argument? And Paul says, he saved him before he was circumcised. Circumcision then became the mark of the covenant. And what Paul is saying is you Gentiles are getting saved the same way that Abraham got saved. But you do not have the mark of the covenant. You are not Israel. You are simply members of the kingdom of God. You are brothers to Yeshua. You are fellow heirs with Yeshua and with the Jews. Now, there has been just all sorts of confusion over this. You get replacement theology from it. The idea that God has rejected Israel and he's brought the Gentiles in and all the promises that go to Israel now belong to the church. And we don't need those Jews anymore. That's replacement theology. That's an error. That is not correct. The other one is, oh, well, we're grafted in. We're Israel. No, you're not. You do not have the mark of the covenant. You do not have the covenant of circumcision. You are not Israel. What you are is you are members of the kingdom of God. And you are saved in the Baptist sense, which is to say your faith has moved you past the lake of fire and into the new heaven and the new earth. Big deal. This is a great thing. But in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation, what it talks about is you have got all sorts of nations who have made it past the lake of fire and are in the new heaven and the new earth, and they are not Israel. Israel has a special place in the new heaven and the new earth. They are in the new Jerusalem. They are the priests. They are the holy nation that God intended them always to be. They have a special role and a special place even in the new heaven and the new earth. And you Gentiles, who are going to make it past the lake of fire, who are going to be in the new heaven and the new earth, you're going to be saved. Wonderful. Glad to have you. But you're not Israel. And if Paul had gone along with the circumcision party, and had said, all right, all you Gentiles coming in now got to be circumcised and you now got to become Israel, then that whole argument would fall apart. But the fact that you've got the book of Acts, chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, and you've got the book of Galatians, both of which are emphatic that Gentiles are in the kingdom of God, but they are not to be required to be circumcised. Comment was, this sounds like the argument of one house messianic Jews. And one house messianic Jews basically says if you are an ethnic Jew, you have a different place in life than if you are a Gentile coming in. The problem with that argument is it is not the house of Judah. It is the entire house of Israel. So what you have is you have tribes of Israel that have been sanded off in various exiles and have lost their identity. But God hasn't lost track of them. So you've got Ephraim out there. You've got Issachar out there. You've got Dan out there. You've got all of these tribes out there, and they don't know who they are. So our particular congregation happens to be a two-house congregation. If you can identify yourself as a Jew, God bless you. Happy to know you're a Jew. If, however, you are drawn to this and you don't identify as a Jew, it is entirely possible that you are Ephraim. We just don't know. 
A one-house congregation says Judah, that's it. Anybody who can track their ancestry back personally to Israel. That would be a one-house congregation. We're a two-house congregation. We believe that all of the rest of Israel is out there, and they're also going to come back, and they're also going to be part of Israel. Because remember, in the new heaven and the new earth, you've got the 12 gates, and you have the 12 pillars. One of them is the names of the 12 apostles, and another one is the names of the 12 tribes. The comment was the argument of the one-house folks is when the Assyrians sanded off the northern kingdom, a whole bunch of righteous, quote-unquote, fled south. And so the kingdom of Judah had, in fact, representatives from all 12 tribes. And that's true. I agree with that. I'm not arguing with that. I'm simply saying there is more out there, or at least that's my opinion. And I will tell you with great authority, God is not going to consult me for my opinion when he decides what to do. (laughs) That's just what I think. So, one more thing, and again, this is a Ron Dartism, which I very much liked. If you have a tree or a plant or a bush, and you're going to graft in parts from a different plant, one of the things that you need to do is you need to thin out the existing plant. Otherwise, the branches from the existing plant will shade the new stuff, and the new stuff, which is stapled in there, will not have a chance to develop. Since God's using agricultural metaphors, I kind of like that agricultural metaphor. So one of the reasons that the branches were broken off is so that this new move of the kingdom of God to include the Gentiles would not be crowded out, overshadowed, and absorbed by rabbinic Judaism. It's a metaphor, and it's an example. If you like it, use it. I like it, which is why I repeated it. Every metaphor eventually fails. I just thought that was kind of a nice way to look at it. But the whole point of the book of Acts, Paul's letter to the Galatians and so forth, is this struggle within Judaism of what do we do with these Gentiles? And as I say, there's a very strong sect, former Pharisees, who say, all right, in order to do that, we got to turn them into Jews. Council of Jerusalem and Paul in his letter to Galatians both say, no, we don't. And Ron Dart's example here was, had those rabbinic, pharisaic Jews not been cut out of the living tree, they would have overshadowed the Christian church and it never would have taken off. So verse 29 Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Moving the Jews to jealousy. The problem with the Sunday church is Jews don't see anything in the Sunday church that makes them jealous because we don't keep Shabbat, we don't eat clean, we don't do all of the things that are commanded by Moses. Now, Shabbat's a big deal. I mean, it's such a big deal that God says, if you don't keep my Shabbat, there's a death penalty here. And if you don't keep my Shabbat, you'll be cut off from the nation. 
So the idea that the Sunday church doesn't keep Shabbat, but instead meets on a different day and worships this guy that they think is God who is not Yehovah, there's nothing about that that makes a Jew jealous. Now, back in the first century, there could have been because the early church was entirely Jewish at first and then they started bringing Gentiles in. But when it was mostly a Jewish church, then there was something to be jealous of because that early church followed Torah. Plus they now had the Holy Spirit, plus they now had the knowledge of the Messiah. That was something to be jealous about. Easter bunnies and ham sandwiches on Sunday don't make a Jew jealous. They just don't. Christmas trees don't make them jealous. Comment was some of them have gone on to Hanukkah bushes since they're at the same time. But that's not a religious thing at all. It's a cultural thing. Oh, the other thing that's going on here is, remember at the beginning of this, I said that there's four groups of people that are in Rome. You got Jews who are not Messianic, which would be rabbinic Jews as we see them today. Not necessarily rabbinic, but they're, not, they're just not Messianic. You got Messianic Jews like Paul. You have got proselytes which are Gentiles who have seen that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is real and want to become Jews. They're converting to Judaism. They're proselytes. And then finally, you've got Gentiles who have been smacked by the Holy Spirit and are there because the synagogue is where the books are. And you've got conflict. So what Paul is saying to the Gentiles, remember this whole thing says, I am writing now to you Gentiles. What Paul is saying is, you guys got the Holy Spirit, and you come into the synagogue, and you're looking down your nose at non-Messianic Jews. Well, I got the Holy Spirit, and you don't have the Holy Spirit, and you guys just don't understand the way of the world here, because God has touched me, and he hasn't touched you. I mean, all you got's the law. And what Paul is saying is, not so fast. You guys need to understand that it's the root that supports you, not you supporting the root. So do not look down upon your Jewish brethren simply because they are not Messianic Jews. Because if you get arrogant, you'll fall into the same trap that the Jews have fallen into with their arrogance. And once that happens, you're liable to get cut out of the tree. And if God cut out the natural branches, he isn't going to have any hesitation whatsoever about taking you out if you get too arrogant. Jealousy is not covetousness. Jealousy is guarding something that belongs to you that is in some kind of danger. That's what jealousy is. And that's healthy. God is jealous. So to be jealous of your wife in the presence of another predatory guy is entirely healthy. Nothing wrong with that. So moving the Jews to jealousy, what the Jews believe is the relationship with God is exclusive to us. And these Gentiles coming in and doing all of our stuff is something that, unless they're going to become Jews, makes us jealous. And that might draw them away from some of the customs. I think it's more the idea of, wait a minute, they have come into the synagogue and they are clearly 
touched by the Holy Spirit, and I want that too. And what they are saying, and what Paul is saying, is the way to get that is through faith in Yeshua. So that I can see them being jealous for, especially in the context of the first century, where the whole church was essentially Jewish or following Torah. It wasn't until later that the Christians split off and quit following Torah. But while everybody was following Torah and you know, the feasts and all those kinds of things, I could see having a Gentile come in who has the Holy Spirit and is also keeping Shabbat and doing all those things. I could see that making a Jew jealous. What I don't see is making a Jew jealous with a Christmas tree or Easter bunny. Let me back up to 26. I want to do that again. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. First, he's talking about saving some. Now he's talking about saving all. In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is new covenant speak. When God raises them from the dead, brings them all back into the land, and he writes his Torah on their hearts, which is where it's supposed to be written from the beginning. And in that process, then, he will take away all their sins. All the things that they did that got them sent into exile, that got them dying in the wilderness, all of the things that Israel did that caused them to die short of what God wanted for them, that will all be forgiven. You will raise them from the dead, bring them into their own land, and forgive their sins, which means also that he will write his Torah upon their heart. And that's in Deuteronomy, that's in Ezekiel, that's in Isaiah, that's in Jeremiah, that is in Yeshua. That's never changed. And you've all heard this, that the new covenant is made with Israel, not with Gentiles. Gentiles get to be in the kingdom of God. Gentiles get past the lake of fire. Gentiles go into the new heaven and the new earth. All that is true. But Israel remains Israel. There's going to be a great white throne judgment. And everybody is going to stand before Yeshua. And the books are going to be open. And some are going to be raised to shame. And some are going to be raised to glory. Depending on what they did. So I can very much imagine that there are going to be a whole lot of genetic Hebrews, not Jews, genetic Hebrews, as well as genetic Gentiles who are going to be raised and be very ashamed when the books are open. I don't know what happens next. This is now imagination, genealogy, not scripture. God's not going to ask me. I think one of the things that's going to happen is the book's going to be open and you're going to be really red-faced and ashamed and hiding your face. And the question is going to be, do you repent of this? And are you going to accept me as your God? The answer to that, I think, will determine which way you go. But as I say, God is not going to ask me how to do it, but I don't see any point in having a judgment if the verdict is predetermined. And one of the things that Ron Dart says, which I like a lot, is you don't have to check logic at the door when you read scripture. And God made us with a logical operating system. The fact that you are able to process logic and so forth is something that's designed into you by God. And the fact that it's designed into you by God must mean that 
it is something that God intends you to use and to rely upon. As I'm sitting here, I am thinking somewhat logically. Nothing wrong with reason. I use it myself sometimes, right? The idea of judgment, which at least in human terms, involves listening to evidence, opening the books and seeing what was done, and then asking for a plea. How do you plead? Guilty or innocent? And my plea would be I'm guilty and I throw myself on the mercy of the court. I did it and I throw myself on the mercy of the court. And at that point, the judge decides what your disposition is. I don't know that that's what's going to happen. But logic tells me that there isn't any point in having a trial if the verdict is predetermined. Verse 28, maybe. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. This goes back to those branches need to be broken off so that this new thing with the Gentiles can grow. So for the gospel, because of you, Gentiles, for your sake, they're enemies of the gospel. In other words, their eyes have been blinded, their hearts have been hardened, and their ears have been stopped. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers because God made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what you have is the two sides there. On the one hand, they're hardened so you Gentiles can make it in. On the other hand, God has made promises to their forefathers, and those promises will be honored. I don't know what the mechanism is going to be, and God's not going to ask me. 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So what he's saying is, when you were disobedient, God showed you mercy. Notice God didn't wait for you to become obedient. While you were disobedient, God showed mercy to you. Cool. We like that. Um, And you have received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, Israel was not doing what their job was. Their job was to be a nation of priests and to spread the word of God around the world. Now, they've done that, but reluctantly. In other words, they had to be sent into exile to get it to happen. And so... You have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. In other words, if God showed you mercy while you were disobedient, what makes you think he can't show them mercy while they're disobedient? Let's read it again. Verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, This whole section is aimed at Gentiles. So you refers to Gentiles. So just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, they weren't doing the job, so God did it for them. 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. In other words, 
you Gentiles got mercy because they were disobedient, didn't do their job, so God did it for them, sent his son, and by that same standard, they who are now disobedient will receive mercy just like you did. For purposes of what the sentences are saying, whether you say disobedience or unbelief, the logic doesn't change. So my translation says disobedience, King Jimmy says unbelief, but the logic of what we just went through is identical either way. So now we're down to verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's Paul's way of saying he's not going to consult John before he decides what to do. God knows what he's going to do, has decided what he's going to do, and he isn't going to consult any of us about it before he does it. (laughs) 